welcome to Awaken Podcast. I hope you enjoy the teaching. So if you weren't aware, I just got back from a, a trip to Israel, and uh, we want to start a new series this morning, uh, a word that we've come up with um, called theography. It actually doesn't exist, but it's, the idea is we want to explore the nature of the scriptures and the geography in which they were written. Uh, and so it's a little bit of a, a theology of geography, uh, of where the scriptures were written, theography, you get it. So great little title, um, and I'm just going to jump right in. The next few, I don't know how long this series will go. It's kind of whenever I run out of stories to tell about my experience in Israel. So um, uh, it's for sure at least the next four to five weeks, and, and maybe beyond that, we'll have to take a break for Advent, but uh, we, we're not really sure. So um, 1 Kings chapter 18, if you will, turn there, and we're going to start here. Um, this was, uh, the first study. So, um, the, the trip I went on was with a rabbi that I've gotten to study with. Laura and I have studied with, uh, uh, over the last couple of years. And he led this group of 12 of us along with our, our guide near, who is my new best friend. Uh, and the idea was we would go to places. So today we're going to study first Kings 18, Mount Carmel, where Elijah calls the prophets of Baal, uh, of Baal uh, up to Mount Carmel. And so we ascend Mount Carmel and we sit down on the top of Mount Carmel and we study first Kings 18. Bam! Done. Unbelievable. So each of these weeks will be a bit of that. Uh, I'll show some pictures of sort of my experience and my, my lens and view of, of the place and hopefully try to paint a picture that uh, invites you all into a little bit of that. So 1 Kings 18, starting in verse 1. Stand if you are able as we read God's word. After a long time, in the third year, the word of the Lord came to Elijah. Go and present yourself to Ahab, and I will send rain on the land. Elijah went to present himself to Ahab. Now the famine was, so, was severe in Samaria, and Ahab had summoned Obadiah, his palace administrator. Obadiah was a devout believer in the Lord. While Jezebel was killing the, off the prophets of the Lord, Obadiah had taken a hundred prophets and hidden them in two caves, fifty in each. He had supplied them with food and with water. Ahab had said to Obadiah, go through the land to all the springs and valleys. Maybe we can find some grass to keep the horses and the mules alive so we will not have to kill any of our animals. And so they divided the land they were to cover, Ahab going in one direction and Obadiah in another. As Obadiah was walking along, Elijah met him. Obadiah recognized him and bowed down to the ground and said, is it really you, my lord, Elijah? Yes, he replied, go and tell your master, Elijah is here. The actual word there is Lord, not master. It's a mistranslation, makes the passage a little more interesting. But yes, he replied, go tell your Lord, Elijah is here. What have I done wrong, asked Obadiah, that you are handing your servant over to Ahab to be put to death? As surely as the Lord your God lives, there is not a nation or kingdom where my master has not sent someone to look for you. And whenever a nation or kingdom claimed you were not there, he made them swear they could not find you. But now you tell me, go to my master and say, Elijah is here. I don't know where the spirit of the Lord may carry you when I leave. And if I go and tell Ahab and he doesn't find you, he will kill me. Yet I, your servant, have worshipped the Lord since my youth. Haven't you heard what I did while Jezebel was killing the prophets of the Lord? I hid a hundred of the Lord's prophets in two caves, 50 in each, and supplied them with food and with water. And now you tell me to go to my master and say, Elijah is here, he will kill me. Elijah said, as surely as the Lord Almighty lives, whom I serve, I will surely present myself to Ahab today. And so Obadiah went to meet Ahab and told him, and Ahab went to meet Elijah. When he saw Elijah, he said to them, or he said to him, is that you, you troubler of Israel? 
That's a fantastic question. I have not I have not made trouble for Israel, Elijah replied, but you and your father's family have. You have abandoned the Lord's commands and have followed the Baals. Pray with me. God, as we open this text and this story and these scriptures, in, a, in, a, in as much as we can, we open ourselves up to it. And we offer all that we know of ourselves to the degree that we can to you, to the God who's behind these stories, the God who exhibits himself, who shows himself in these stories. And we ask that you might come near and that you might change us. And all God's people said, Amen. You can have a seat. Now, you might be thinking, why, Micah, have you stopped at verse 18, right? I mean, this is the story of Elijah on, the, on Mount Carmel. The, the, the story gets really interesting after where I stopped, right? Elijah invites the prophets of Baal and the 400 prophets of this other lady up to the mountain, and he says, do your deal, call on your gods, and nothing happens. And Elijah, you know, dumps the water, not once, not twice, but three times on the altar, calls down fire from heaven, and all the prophets of Baal are, you know, well, killed. You know, that's where the, that's where the, uh, sort of, that's the, you know, the fire of this one, you know, that's where this passage moves. And I would suggest that there's actually a lot going on in this passage before we ever get there. So that's where I want to focus this morning. And I want to start by just painting a little bit of background for you. Uh, the time period is 740 BC or so. Um, we are in the northern kingdom. So if you remember the story of Israel, there's 12 tribes of Israel. They come out of the Exodus into the land and there's a monarchy for a short period of time. The kingdom splits, and there's 10 tribes in the north called Israel, two tribes in the south called Judah. We're in the north, and this is, as Dickens would say, the best of times and the worst of times, okay? The Israelites have inhabited the land. They're in the promised land where the land is flowing with what? Milk and honey, according to the scriptures. So things ought to be good, right? This is garden living again. You're in, the, you're in the presence of Yahweh. You're in the land that God has given you. It's the best of times. It's also the best of times because this particular area is, is really, really important and really, really fertile. And so um, the northern kingdom is as prosperous as it has ever been. There's more money to go around. And yet they are experiencing this tremendous famine and drought. I'm going to show a couple of pictures of uh, what I saw standing on Mount Carmel. This is the top of Mount Carmel looking at the valley of Jezreel. This valley right here is absolutely strategic and important for a couple of different reasons. Number one, as you can see, it's very fertile. Um, if you remember the passage in Isaiah, the desert will rejoice and bloom, and the ransomed of the Lord will walk upon the wasteland. Okay? Israel is a desert and the, 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 the Jewish people, God's people, have come into this desert and they have made it bloom with the help of Yahweh. So this land, this particular valley, is extremely fertile. Anything and everything you can imagine that might grow could grow there. Grapes, citrus, you know, uh, nuts, vegetables, it's all there. These right here, these are olive trees. They're everywhere in Israel. They're beautiful. Um, so this is the land that they occupy. The northern tribe actually owns this. They occupy it. They live there. Okay, show that next picture, if you will. Um, there's a mountain range that comes out of the Mediterranean and goes southeast from there, which Mount Carmel is on, overlooking the Jezreel Valley right here. Um, Megiddo, if you remember this passage, if you read Revelation literally, this is where the Battle of Armageddon is going to take place, just so you know. Uh, that's a whole other sermon. We're not going to go there today. Uh, but if you are going to move anything from the north up in Babylon, uh, Mesopotamia, to the south into Egypt, 
this route right here is where you travel. So if you own it and occupy it and all these people are traveling through, what do you do to them? Tax them. You win. Good job. You tax them. So they're getting all sorts of revenue from taxes and they're growing all sorts of things in this land. It's like things are bursting at the seams and yet there's famine and there is drought in the land. I want to start by asking a question, does the number three mean anything, right? The chapter 18 opens and Elijah shows up to Ahab, the king of Israel, the northern tribes, in the third year of a drought. Now, if you know anything about biblical Hebrew, you will know that numbers play a very important role. I will say this as a side. This is not science. It's not um, one-to-one, if this, then that, okay? It's not a formula, But I will say that when you're coming to the text and you want to interpret the text and understand what's going on in the text, a very good question for you to ask is, does that number have any significance? And more often than not, the answer will be yes. In this particular passage, I would suggest that it is the key that unlocks it for why and what is going on and what's being presented. So it begins, Elijah comes in the third year of a drought. What's up with the number three? In order to understand scripture, you got to go to scripture. Very good, friends. Genesis chapter 22. Go back, if you will. This is one of the first times the number, is th- the number three is used other than or outside of the third day of creation in Genesis chapter one, which is actually connected. But here's where it kind of, here's where it really solidifies or here's where it crystallizes, becomes clear. Genesis 22 verse one says, sometime later, God tested Abraham. Don't forget this is a test. He said to Abraham, um, God God tested Abraham and he said to him, Abraham, here I am, he replied. The word is hineni, very important. Then God said, take your son, your only son whom you love, first usage of the word love, Isaac, and go to the region of Moriah. Sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on the mountain I will show you. Pause. God invites Abraham to take his son, the one son, the seed of the sacred future, to a mountain, a, a, a region, an area called Moriah and sacrifice him there. Abraham doesn't know where, he doesn't know what, he doesn't know which mountain, he doesn't know where it will be. It's just a region. You should know Moriah is actually the Temple Mount. If you look under, if you take the Dome of the Rock and you split it and you look down, you will find the exposed top of the Mount Moriah, the biblical Mount Moriah where Abraham supposedly walks up to and attempts to sacrifice his son. This is also the place upon which David, or I should say Solomon, builds the temple mount and basically raises up a rectangle around Mount Moriah to build on top of for the temple. This is, where we're, this is what we're talking about here. But Abraham doesn't know where. He just, God says, go to this place. So he's not where he was, and he's not where he's going But in verse 4, he sees for the first time. Verse 3, early the next morning, Abraham got up and loaded his donkey. He took with him two servants and his son Isaac. When he'd cut enough wood for the burnt offering, he set out for the place. The word is harakom. It means, um, it's, it's it's loaded with meaning. It's used in all kinds of passages in scripture. The place God had had, uh, told him about. And on the third day, verse 4, Abraham looks up and saw the place that God had called him to that in the distance. So I want to suggest that the number three has this idea of you're not where you were. You're not where you started from. You are not where you're going. But for the first time, it becomes clear what it is that God is inviting you into. 
It's a threshold moment where you see for the first time exactly what it is that God is inviting you to step into. It's for the first time you see the river that God is inviting you to participate in. So go back to Elijah and 1 Kings. I want to suggest that this number three has this kind of a uh, uh, meaning in this text. It, remember, in, verse, in chapter 17, Elijah comes to Ahab and says, listen, there is a famine and it's coming to you. I want to suggest that famine and drought is not, is not actually talking about water or lack of rain or, or drought, but rather something far deeper and far more spiritual than that. And I, would, I want to suggest that the people would have known it that the Israelites would have known that when Elijah comes to him and says, Ahab, king of Israel, a drought, a famine is coming to you, that they would have known that this is about something far deeper than that. Turn back to X, or I'm sorry, Amos chapter 8, if you will, and I'll just read it from the screen here. The days are coming, declares the sovereign Lord, when I will send a famine through the land, not a famine of food or water or, or thirst for water, but a famine of hearing the words of the Lord. People will stagger from sea to sea and wander from north to east, searching for the word of the Lord, but they will not find it. So here we have the people of Israel, three years into a drought, a famine, and in the third year, Elijah shows up. Remember, in chapter 17, again, Ahab has the opportunity to see. Elijah comes to him, there's prosperity in the land, I mean, things are going well, but there is no spirit There is no ruach, God, like the presence of God, the word of the Lord is not present among the Israelites. It's like Elvis has left the building, right? Yahweh is not nowhere to be found in Israel. And Elijah comes and says, listen, gang, here it is. Famine and drought are coming, not because God's punishing you, but rather here is a mirror reflecting the true nature of the the hearts of the people. And it's famine and it's drought. By the way, Does anybody catch what the king's doing midway through the story? The king of Israel, right? Where do we find him with his trusted right-hand man? Wandering around the desert looking for what? Water, water, grass to feed the animals, right? So in the middle of this drought, we find the king of Israel wandering around in the desert looking for water. Amos says, you know, there's this drought, it's coming, it's a famine, it's not about water, it's not about rain, it's actually about something that's happening in the hearts of the people. So here we have the people wandering around. And it's as if, when Elijah comes, it's as if he says, here is your invitation into the sacred future. Here is your invitation into the nexus of God's activity on one hand in your lives as another. Can you see it? Elijah comes to the, to the king Ahab and he says these things. So the question that's pulsing through the text for the Israelites is, here's the sacred future. Here's your chance to step back into the river into which you've been called to live as the people of God. And I want to suggest that this is exactly what the word for sin in biblical Hebrew means. It's the word hate, and it means to miss the mark. Here's your chance to change trajectory. Here's your chance to step back. Here's your chance to to, to change your course. And I think maybe a question I would ask is, Is it altogether that simple in spiritual life for you and for me? We miss the mark all the time. We misstep all the time. We have offerings to walk this out, to step in this river, and we miss it all the time. Brendan Manning says, Our life will be a collection of disastrous victories and glorious defeats, a string of mid-course corrections, which is really what 
repent in Hebrew means teshuva, return, change your course. As we think about Elijah and we think about 1 Kings in this story, I wonder if this is any different for us. I wonder if we find ourselves in the midst of this at all. Where we are given an opportunity to see, where we're given an opportunity to reflect and to, to change, to move, and here it is. Can you see it? Now remember, for a minute, where we are in Israel, right? 740, United Kingdom Israel has fallen. It's not a monarchy. It's, it's two kingdoms. We have the north. It's made up of these 10 tribes. It's flourishing. There's money. There's all kinds of things going on. And yet, there's, it, there's no rain. There's famine. There's drought. So maybe a question that could be asked is, what does it mean to be in the promised land and experiencing famine and drought? What does it mean to be in the place that God has called you and experiencing famine and drought? How can you have everything that you want and still be missing the very thing that you need? Remember the Israelites, right? They have wandered for 40 years in the desert of Sinai. They've now, with Joshua, come into the land, and it ought to be that the land is flowing with what? Milk and honey, right? Like, this is it. This is garden living. This is where we should be. This is where Yahweh is. This is the whole deal. Is it possible, and I ask this question very tenderly, is it possible that the actions and the choices that the Israelites have made impact their experience of God's presence? We all kind of go, yeah, I think so. Okay, fast forward. Is it possible that our actions and the choices that we make influence and alter our experience of God's presence? I don't say that because I want to say that if you haven't been healed, you don't have enough faith, or because you're financially struggling, that's not it. But I think the, the text asks a very important question, which is connected to the way in which we live our lives And when we choose and act outside of this river that God has called us into, it impacts. It makes a difference. Does anybody notice what's happening in the middle of the passage, right? In the middle of this passage, we find the king of Israel wandering around in the desert looking for water. Uh, There's famine in the land. The king's been told this is going to happen. And he's been told why by the prophet Amos, right? The spirit's missing. You've, 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 You've missed the course. You've missed the river. Whatever you've done, it's outside of it. And yet we still find him wandering around in the desert looking for water. It's like, hey, do you remember the, the scene in Titanic? Do you remember the movie Titanic? Leo, you know, Rose, the whole deal. Remember this one, right? At the end of the movie, I saw this movie like on Valentine's Day with Laura when we were dating. I'll just stop there. Uh, so at the end of the movie, at the end of the movie, right, the ship is going down and there's a quartet of string players like playing their violins. And Do you remember this? It's like a grand adventure in missing the point. You're all going to die on the ship, and these guys are up there, like, playing away. Which, I mean, artistically, it's kind of a beautiful juxtaposition when you think about art and beauty and death and all that, but it, it's, an, it's an adventure in missing the point. We have some friends who live in Madison. She tells a story about her mom. Uh, you know, at one point, things are just a chaotic mess all around them in their lives, you know, everything. There's all kinds of important things that could be dealt with and, and, and could be focused on. And she found her mom one, that one particular day in the kitchen, like scrubbing the corners of the joints on the cupboards of the kitchen cabinets. Like there aren't more important things to be thinking about. And yet sometimes, somehow, we busy ourselves with all kinds of things that aren't important so that we don't have to think about the things that are. 
Ahab the king running around looking for water in the desert, wondering why there's a famine. In Genesis 13, Lot looks up and he, he likens the valley that he sees. He says it looks like the garden of the Lord, right? This is Eden. And he says it looks like the garden of the Lord and like Egypt. What happens in the, in the matter of like a space in the text in the Bible right there is massive. Lot sees something and he likens the garden of the Lord to Egypt. In the story, Egypt is the narrow place that you have left where God cannot be worshipped. Literally, it means the narrow place. It's exodus, it's slavery, it's bondage, and Lot sees this and likens the garden of the Lord to this. What happens when we mistake material abundance for God's presence? What happens when we mistake something that looks beautiful that with God's presence. So we have this sacred seeing in the first part. We have this mistaking abundance for presence. And I would say, maybe last, uh, I would say it this way, when logical is not the invitation. When you look at this story of Elijah in 1 Kings 18, the actions of King Ahab and everything that he does, it actually makes total sense if you're talking about ancient Near Eastern kings and kingdoms. He knows that the Assyrians are coming from the north and it's only a matter of time before they get to Israel. So what does he do? He starts marrying off his daughters to neighboring countries and making alliances and allegiances. This is just good political move. It's a good thing. And it's very common for a king to do in that time and in that place. But they're not any king. And he's, he's not any king and they're not any kingdom. This is Israel called to live by faith. Let me say it this way. Following Yahweh for Israel in the scriptures is hardly ever logical, right? Um, listen, you're a hundred and you're going to have a baby. I mean, you're old, like really old, and you're going to have a baby. Your wife is going to get pregnant. Uh, does anybody remember Happy Gilmore when he's like, he's old. I mean, you're old. You're going to have a baby. I'm in a, there's a nation that is going to be made out of a, a baby that's coming from you too. Abraham, Abram and Sarai, this is absolutely illogical and completely off the, rat, off the map. Not possible. Not only that, but once you have this baby, you're going to be asked to sacrifice him. The, sa- the, the seed of the sacred future, you're going to be asked to walk up to a mountain and sacrifice him. Totally bonkers. Go to Pharaoh, the most powerful person on the planet, and tell him to let my people go doesn't make any sense. Leave in the middle of the night and camp right below the largest military lookout in in front of an impassable sea. Camp there. Collect only enough food for one day. Have you ever been in a situation in your life where you felt the invitation of God and it just didn't make any sense? It was illogical. It was off the map. It was impossible. It was bonkers to everybody else but you knew that you knew that you knew that you knew. Leave this job. Seek reconciliation and forgiveness from that family member. Step out in faith and do this. Bless and give it away. Don't hoard it. 
I want to suggest that it's hardly ever the invitation of Yahweh when it's logical and when it makes perfect sense. It's kind of like too good to be true. Probably is. You've heard that before. This passage closes with, at least my version of this passage today, closes with this interaction between Elijah and the king. Verse 17 says, When he saw Elijah and he said to him, Is that you, you troubler of Israel? I have not made trouble for Israel, Elijah replied. Here it is. Here's the mirror. Here's, here's the moment. But you and your father's family have. You have abandoned the Lord's commands and you have followed the Baals. And now summon all of the people from all over Israel and meet me on Mount Carmel. Bring the 450 prophets of Baal, the 400 prophets of Asherah who eat at Jezebel's table. And so Ahab sent word throughout all of Israel and assembled the prophets on Mount Carmel. Elijah went before the people and said, how long, here it is, here's the moment, how long will you waver between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. If Baal is God, follow him. I want to offer the possibility that most of scripture is an invitation that it's an invitation to believe something about the God that is offered in this book. It's an invitation to believe that there is one God that made the world that we live in. It's an invitation to believe that it's this Jesus, a representative, the son of this God who is sent on our behalf and accomplishes something for us and offers it back. I want to suggest that it's an invitation. And just like all of the prophets who have come before me by the way, near our tour guide all week called me Micha, the prophet. Uh, that's kind of cool, you know? <laughs> so like, bam, drop it like it's hot. <laughs> that I would stand before you today and say, not much different. There's an invitation for you to consider something about the way in which the world works, the nature of God, if there is one. And it's invitation. And if the Lord is God, if this Yahweh is God, then follow him with all of your heart and throw yourself into the river and participate in what God is doing in the world. Follow him. And if not, the choices are ours. They really are and they matter. And so I guess I would offer you with open hands what Elijah offers Israel on Mount Carmel. Follow this Jesus. Find us online at www.awakencommunity.com or on Facebook at www.facebook.com backslash awakencommunity or on Twitter. Community. See you next time.